Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit subscribe and don't forget to hit that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live. We're constantly adding cross streams with other channels and adding and sometimes even revamping shows. That said, this is a pre-recorded episode. It is not live. So sadly, Pascal and I cannot respond to your questions or chat activity. But usually when this is being re-aired, one of us, if not both of us, and even MT is in the chat. And sadly, MT did not make this episode either. Uh, we want to say thank you to all the patrons and YouTube and tri sorry, Twitch subscribers. You guys are the oh-so-important cogs in the TIR machine. If you'd like to be a part of what we do here, have access to the call-in segment, which we've been revamping. Uh, been a lot of fun. The Champagne Room and Movie Night. There's only one way to do it. Become a patron. For as low as $3 a month or $30 for the year, you can have access to all the current and past champagne rooms and the movie nights and be a part of the Mau Mau Hour with my co-host, my homie, my dog. He is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. There is no chat today. There is no chat today. It's it's. This is a show where I feel like the comments are going to be. It it would have been a very interactive show had we done it live. Truly, um, and I think the fact that we're not doing it live means we can probably concentrate a little bit more on the content we're discussing, um, because this is one of those situations where the first time we had our guest Jason Mueller on the show, we were talking about. Um, okay boomer memes and i don't remember if it was on the show in the champagne room or off air he had mentioned that he had done a lot of writing about the war in somalia and that's actually one of his areas of study and so i, I think he hit me up about an article he wrote in sublation yep and it was like, oh yeah, let's let's get you on. Once I found a date, and it worked with him and his his new schedule. He's got a new teaching position before he was on my coast. Now he's far, far away in Georgia. But uh, this is going to be a good episode because I I haven't seen too many people cover the U.S. involvement. And what's going on in Somalia? Maybe you get some coverage on Ethiopia and Eritrea, but really Somalia. I haven't seen much coverage. Have you? No, I haven't. And, you know, there's a lot of recent news about Somalia in terms of U.S. activity that's worth covering. Oh, yeah. So let's let's get into it. Uh, after 20 years of failure in Afghanistan, the U.S. pulled out of a violent plunder of power with its war on terror that left the region more unstable than it was before the U.S. arrived to rid the Middle East of terrorism. While many pundits of various varieties had much to say on the withdrawal and U.S. incompetency, not much is said about the U.S. involvement in Somalia. 
over a decade in a bloody conflict that has increased instability in the Horn of Africa from a recent article in Sublation Magazine. The prior two decades of U.S., Ethiopian, and Kenyan military excursions have almost always exacerbated the degree of violence in the region. Whether we are talking about the U.S. CIA providing hundreds of thousands of dollars to a failed putsch by secular warlords to stop a coalition of largely popular Islamists from gaining power in 2006, the U.S. supported Ethiopian invasion and occupation of Somalia from 2006 to 2009, the Kenyan invasion of Somalia in 2011, the U.S. decade-long drone strike campaign in the region, or various other initiatives, all seem to fail at the task of, quote, countering terrorism. Now, Allow me to pause the story on Somalia for an adjunct but important commentary. When people ask the philosopher Slavoj Žižek how to go about solving the world's social problems, they're often unsatisfied with his response. His, his reply usually explains how the job of the philosopher or critical thinker more broadly is not necessary to provide direct answers in so much as it is to reconsider questions from a fresh perspective. As he mentions in one interview, we cannot provide answers. Maybe even more important than providing answers is to change the questions to show how the way we formulate a problem can be part of the problem. That was written by our guest today, Jason Mueller. Jason holds a PhD in sociology. His prior research spans a wide range of issues from the drivers of political violence in Somalia to the capitalist realism of OK Boomer memes. You can find his prior publications in Critical Sociology, Peace Review, the Sociological Review Magazine, and many, many more. And there are links in the description wherever you're watching the show to Jason's work. Please welcome, coming all the way live from somewhere, Georgia. I'm not going to say where it's a secret. Jason Mueller. <laughs> Hey guys, thanks for having me back on to talk about Somalia. And uh, you've had some really good shows lately. I just want to say they're always good, but I really, really like the um, the chat you guys had on the the student strikes at the University of California oh, workers, yeah. oh, and that touches really close to home for me, given my history of working at the UC system myself. And as that an adjunct, was an show. you were you were there as an adjunct, right? I was both a graduate student in the UC system and an adjunct at the UC system. So I know both types of strikes that have been threatened or what are going on now. And uh, it's just a great episode you guys did. So thanks for having me back to talk to you. Oh, oh no problem. No problem. Um, and we've known Dylan for a little bit. So that's, that's always a, a good spicy talk, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> well, let's, let's start off with a bit of an a elementary history lesson. How did the U.S. get involved in Somalia in the first place, Jim? Well, uh, wow. so the history in Somalia dates back. So Somalia sort of got kicked around during their sort of the colonial period, back from the late 18 going into 1900s. So part of northern Somalia was carved out by British colonialism and the central and southern part um, Italian colonialism. And if we sort of fast forward a little bit through that history, once we get to sort of the 1960s to present um, in the post-colonial period, right, we're at sort of the later half of the Cold War period of capitalism versus socialism, I guess you could say globally. And Somalia was in a really odd position 
where at times they were allied with the United States briefly, at times with the Soviet Union. They did something where they then lost Soviet support. Um, so they sort of got kicked around during the Cold War period. And then when sort of the end of history, uh, end of ideology, right, allegedly approached by the turn of the 80s into 90s, Somalia was, for recent history, this is when the U.S. got extra involved. And if anyone listening to the stream here can remember the film or has seen the film, Black Hawk Down, mm -hmm. which came out back in 2001, I believe, um, it was a drama, dramatical Hollywood depictment of a real U.S. intervention in the early 1990s in Somalia, where this was after the Somali state collapsed around 1991. And in the preceding months and a year or two after that, the United States dabbled in trying to spearhead what was initially sort of a multilateral intervention into Somalia. And there was a pretty bad sort of famine going on. And the United States took what is normally considered, right, a, quote, humanitarian aid mission, which is at least what it's called, right, in the sort of post-Cold War era. And it got sort of twisted into a military intervention as well. So the U.S. military went into Mogadishu in the capital of Somalia. And then uh, what became known as the Black Hawk Down fiasco in the movie was actually known as sort of the Battle of Mogadishu. And uh, basically, the United States caused a great deal of harm. The estimates were possibly up to a thousand Somalis killed within a day or so. Although that generally was not discussed much, and what gets what became infamous was a U.S. Black Hawk helicopter. The military got shot down in the streets of Mogadishu. A couple U.S. Uh, uh, service members were killed, and their corpses got dragged through the street. And that sort of became an infamous moment of the U.S. failed meddling and in intervention in the early '90s in Somalia. So after that, Somalia, if it was ever on the radar of politics sort of dropped off of the radar of getting talked about in the United States much. But in the context of um, this essay for Sublation magazine um, that I wrote and some of my other work, in the war on terrorism period, the US's interest in Somalia never went away, including in the couple of years leading up to and prior to 9-11-2001. Um, I'll keep going unless you want to interject with anything. No, 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 no. This is this we need. I, I, me personally, I want to get some context to to the U.S. involvement okay. and um, sure. what's what's funny. You know, as we talk about the OK Boomer memes, <laughs> I don't know too many people remember Black Hawk Down. Yes, I mean, so Black Hawk Down came out, if I'm not mistaken, just a couple of months after. 9-11-2001. I think it was so in the immediate fervor, yeah, right after the U.S. was an ultra-nationalist, fight, fight the bad guys type of mode, this really dramatic Hollywood movie about the U.S. military going in, trying to kill the bad guys, blah, 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 came out. And this was like, this was, for those who haven't seen the movie who end up listening to this stream, this was a big film in the United States when it came out. Huge. A big, like, look at the American suffering trying to lead a humanitarian effort type of film. So, I had a, but, oh yeah, I had a question I wanted to ask you that, you know, 
Um, you, your piece covered some of the natural resources in Somalia that have been recently discovered, particularly oil. One of the things I didn't hear or read in your article, which I was aware of from the Black Hawk Down era, was the presence of uh, uranium in Somalia. I mean, I don't. I know it's not one of the top three uranium providers in the African continent, but it does have pretty decent reserves. Is that a factor in the interest the West has of the country, or is that not really on the radar? So Somalia is one of the places that every, for the last couple of decades, and it's not exclusive to Somalia, but the sudden discovery of subterranean resources um, are extremely important in at least in my understanding of how global politics works, right? These types of things. So I think you're not only uranium, which I'm actually less familiar with in terms of Somalia, but other oil and gas resources, a lot of potential contracts and things that were discovered right before the state totally collapsed, all of those contracts got put on ice for all of the biggest extractive industries in the world, especially many US-based ones who wanted to get in there, you know, and make some money. And um, specifically, um, of course, this isn't, this was never invoked for the rationale behind why the United States went in in the early 90s. But there's some interesting reports. I was just reading one a couple of days ago, going back to the early 90s, the Los Angeles Times had a great piece, I think in 1993, I forget who the author was. Mm. But right when the United States was thinking of intervening, the LA Times had a great piece on where they interviewed um, executives at the largest sort of extractive industry companies in the United States and said, do you think the United States might be getting involved in want to go into Somalia to stabilize the region to get resources? And of course, a lot of it, if I'm not mistaken, was, um, you know, sort of anonymized discussions. I'm not sure. A lot of these people gave their names of who we're talking. I can't remember. Maybe some of them did. But even prior to, if I'm not mistaken, that LA Times piece was before the Black Hawk Down incident, I think, temporally. This was a this was a piece from the I think January 93. Um, this stuff was being talked about sort of quietly among people who wanted to get resources there. And that sort of falls behind the radar in the terrorism fighting angle, because um, connecting to um, back to what was going on before September 11th, the whole rationale of the last several decades, right, of the U.S. intervening in Somalia was claiming to be doing a counterterrorism mission. But, right, actually before September 11th, 2001, the United States government was investigating whether the money remittance systems in Somalia were financing terrorist networks, quote, including Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden. So the U.S. was already investigating this before September 11, 2001. And all of the answers to that that they found were there was no there was no tangible evidence whatsoever to suggest that this was, in fact, a reality. So the U.S.'s own internal audit, you could say, basically concluded that these money remittance systems were not funding known terrorist networks that the U.S. was interested in prior to 9-11. And yet it continued to be a justification, um, 
as soon as September 11th, 2001, as soon as the 9-11 attacks happened in the United States, one of the Bush administration's first moves was to claim to want to financially strangle the networks that, quote, financed terrorist murderers or something like that, he said. So one of the first things they did was freeze Somalia's main, one of their main money remittance systems, which totally sort of shot their economy even worse than it was. And then that leads us up to the 2001 period now, which we can sort of then put the bracket on for what's been going on the past 20 years since then. So I'll stop going on at this point if you want to engage it all on that. Um, otherwise, I can keep going on forever, of course. Well, it, it sounds like, you know, with with putting a stranglehold on these remittance systems, I'm assuming that uh, a big part of the GDP in Somalia, much like countries like the Philippines, is probably the export of their labor throughout certain parts of the, the world, right? Cheap, cheap uh, Somali labor. So as these people are sending money back home, there's some app or or western union-esque what that's what jason is saying is a remittance system that they're using in the u.s froze it that's probably going to create more terrorists right i mean <laughs> if you so one thing that's really incredible like what's sad and incredible not in a good way but just a noting something kind of way is this happened the, the money remittance system got basically frozen mm -hmm. basically a full decade after the entire Somali state apparatus collapsed and was unfunctional and disintegrated. So not only are we talking about, right, normally when we think about money remittances from the diaspora in the global south already being a big part of its um, keeping people afloat who are living mm -hmm. close to poverty sometimes or in poverty, but this was already impacting a population that had been living in a civil war of no functioning government for an entire decade, which made it that much worse. So this was a decade after the state collapsed. Then they got this financial stranglehold. And uh, of course, a couple of years, I believe, after um, that the system was shut down, basically, and completely put on lockdown, the US government very quietly admitted, oh, we actually had no reason to really do that. There was no evidence of it financing any terrorists. And uh, maybe you guys aren't all terrorists after all. Jeez. But, you know, tell that to somebody who had their entire re livelihood and money re revoked yeah. for months or years on end. Like, it's, you're right. It's going to cause a lot of people to be really mad at you. And uh, quietly admitting years later that you messed up is, is not doing much to solve a social problem, right? I mean, we always talk about that on this show. Who captures that energy in that moment, right? That was, so that's what the really tragic thing in Somalia is, right? Is that there was no, so the state had been collapsed for so long. So there was nobody providing social services, really. Mm -hmm. And if we, as the 2001 period moved along to through, let's say the next five years or so, through about 2006, mm -hmm. uh, a pretty popular sort of network of, I think if I'm not mistaken, between one to two dozen sort of local courts popped up across Southern Somalia that became right known as the Union of Islamic Courts. And the UIC was this like heterogeneous mixture of different, different branches of Islam were represented in different types of different courts, depending on where they were and what population they were representing there. So it was a pretty large amalgamation of a dozen or two 
Islamic court systems that regardless of how one feels about Sharia law, they were taken to be by far the most popular legal, political, juridical, economic system that had emerged in Somalia since the state collapsed 15 years earlier. So the UIC was widely supported in South Central Somalia. They were getting the quote to the economy and the legal system and the political system, stuff that you know we normally take for granted as a smooth functioning machine to help us go about our day-to-day -day lives. This had not existed for you know a decade and a half. And the UIC was the first real group to start solving these problems for people in Somalia who are living in, in many cases, real immiseration. And, uh, but the problem with that, of course, was that being Islamic courts triggered the, uh, the, the fears of both the United States government in the couple of years following 9-11. So the fanatical war on terrorism, which was right in many ways considered a war on political Islam. Um, so that set off alarms in the United States. And then Ethiopian government, which has a very sort of long, bitter rivalry with Somalia for different reasons, interacted with the U.S. government and basically said, hey, these guys over in Somalia are really dangerous and uh, you guys probably shouldn't like them either. Even though they're broadly popular, you guys, you guys don't like their brand of politics that they're going to bring in town and we need to do something about this. So the U.S.'s first effort was the CIA funneling money and arms to a group of, I guess, what we would call warlords. And that totally backfired. They were totally routed in a short time. They were squashed and they went away. So when the covert method didn't work, this is what eventually led to the late 2006 Ethiopian military's invasion and then subsequent occupation of Somalia in its capital, Mogadishu, for the subsequent two years, which had a terrible, just just terrible outcome for the people of Somalia because everyone in the Union of Islamic Courts mostly was chased out or killed from the region. And then this very small group of misfits who are considered basically misfits who are nobodies, mm. the small group of youth um, were the only ones left to fill the power vacuum that became sort of known as Al-Shabaab, which if I'm not mistaken, translates from Arabic to English basically as being called the youth. And the small group went from a bunch of nobodies who had very little power to a really strong insurgency that grew to thousands and thousands strongs over the subsequent years who both could say, hey, look, there's Americans invading us, there's Ethiopians invading us, there's Christians at war against Islam. So they had nationalist and religious sort of ideological justifications they could invoke to garner insurgent support for their insurgency against the Ethiopian military, against the U.S.'s proxy support, and against what became a very largely unpopular Somali federal government, which was not liked by much of the Somali population for most of that time. So things went from bad to a lot worse and a lot more violent, sadly in the subsequent five years after 9-11 in Somalia. Well, let's move a little bit on to the current events. It's one of the things that I find particularly disturbing and somewhat ironic is that in the face of what the United States has demonstrated 
to be an attempt to move, pivot away or move away from the Muslim world and pivot to the wet to to uh, to the East and Asia as a new point of contention, if you will, geostrategically, particularly after the debacle in Afghanistan. The Biden administration has increased drone strikes in the Horn of Africa, particularly in Somalia, as if all of the history we've had in the war on terror didn't exist. So my question exactly is that what is of value particularly to the, to the Biden administration that would merit them increasing drone strikes at this moment? Is this an attempt to finish off a job not well done? Or are there, or is this a consequence of the development of AFRICOM, particularly in the Horn of Africa? Because we know that the Horn of Africa is one of the few places on the African continent where AFRICOM is very, very uh, well developed in terms of military bases, as a matter of fact. So what is the driving force behind this military action on the part of the Biden administration? Yeah. Everything you just said are really important points to bring up. Um, so you're right. So AFRICOM, right, the U.S.'s military missions in Africa, uh, has a, sunk a ton of money in the last decade or two into building out a strategic site in the, the East African country, Djibouti, Djibouti, right? So the United States has spent a lot of time basically using Djibouti as a proxy spot to launch the global war on terror operations, both in Somalia and do reconnaissance elsewhere, we can be certain of. Um, and geographically, right, if anyone out there listening remembers, um, besides fighting al-Shabaab as an insurgency in Somalia, the other thing that Somalia has been in the news in for the last 20 years is, quote, Somali piracy, right? So hijackings of really big freighter ships going around the Horn of Africa, including up past Yemen and Arabia or out into the Indian Ocean. And Somalis were hijacking giant ships and holding them for ransom. And so there's been this overlap of U.S. interests in the region there, both, quote, countering piracy and countering terrorism, because a lot of important cargo comes around that space geographically where the Africa heads into Arabia and places like that. So geostrategically, economically, and politically, Somalia is at a launching point to both heading east into right the Arabian Peninsula to where the U.S. does all their operations out there and westward across northwestern Africa. So Somalia is, you know, a pin drop on the map where the U.S. military can launch all sorts of operations north, south, east, west of there. So the U.S. has spent a lot of money cultivating an infrastructure in Djibouti. Um, which has been really well documented by um, a journalist named Nick Terse, who has written a lot about it, um, about the U.S. war on terror in Africa and um, AFRICOM. And I think Terse still reports on that. Um, and I've learned a lot from him reading his stuff over the years. So that's a good source for readers interested in that as well. But yeah, it's a mixture of right the political economy of resources in the area, the geostrategic interest of what's going on across in Yemen and the Arabian Peninsula and in North Africa as well, where the U.S. also carries out other counterterrorism missions across right, the Sahel and North African region as well. So Somalia sort of 
dropped dead in the middle of a place which has really important oceans where a lot of cargo goes through. So it's a choke point of political importance, of economic importance. And sadly, nobody in Somalia is benefiting financially, at least at least the working class of Somalia is not seeing any benefits from all of these uh, missions, sadly. Jeez. Uh, what was that movie with Tom Hanks where the Somali pirates take his ship? Captain over? Phillips. Captain Phillips, yeah. yeah. Would you call that a propaganda film? It, it basically was. I remember when I watched it, and I was I was watching it, and I was trying to not complain because I know what you're getting into when you're watching a Hollywood film about something. But there was about 15 seconds of the film, which I like. I really liked when I watched it, and it's always stuck with me. <laughs> 15 seconds. <laughs> there were very good 15 seconds, and for mm. those 15 seconds, it was a very good material analysis of the situation, and it stuck with me ever since watching it a decade ago, which was. There was a very brief period in the early part of the film where they were talking to Somalis on the beach who were thinking about going out and they were talking about whether they were going to start hijacking ships or not. Mm. And um, if I'm not mistaken, a few, a, few of the, a few of the Somali citizens there said, look, our, our seas here have been elite. There's been illegal fishing in the seas outside of Somalia, which did happen um, in the 90s. There was illegal fishing destroying the fishing community. There was toxic dumping off the coast of Somalia, which was very bad for, it, it would wash ashore and it impacts people, not, not just the wild, the sea life, but the people impacted by it. So I said, we have illegal fishing, we had toxic dumping, we have no material resources here for improving our life since the state collapsed. The only way to get the attention of people who claim to care about our humanitarian interests might be to hijack these ships, which has the really valuable cargo on it to get people's attention and make some money because we've been materially devastated here for some time in no small part, thanks to people more powerful than us dumping and fishing and destroying our country and our economy. And for that short little monologue at the beginning of the film, I said, okay, that was, I wish that was extended more than 20 seconds, but that was a small glimmer of what I think was historical accuracy which led to the emergence of Somali piracy and maritime hijackings at its peak, if I'm not mistaken, was happening a couple hundred times per year mm -hmm. um, back in the 20, 2010 or so. I think it was really big. A little Maybe before like that, too. Yeah, I that. worked, you know, when I was in the Gulf of Mexico, I actually worked with guys that had to deal with that. Really? Um, a lot of, yeah, a lot of the Filipino guys that I worked with worked on cargo ships. And they were telling me about the routine and it didn't sound frightening. They're like, look, man, these guys, you can't stop them because they have small boats. I mean, if you've ever been on a cargo ship, they're massive. They don't move very fast and they dock. They have to, or, or they have to anchor sometimes. Right. And so when you're going around a port city, Somalia, right. Or an area where you're coastal, you're probably going to anchor for a bit to get supplies and even if you're not you're not moving very fast and these boats are super fast and they just know how to climb up and they're like well if you can throw stuff at them then you throw stuff at them and sometimes they just go away and if not if they get on he goes they find the captain they ask for the manifest and then that's it 
I was like, do you guys fight? He goes, why do we fight? It's not ours. <laughs> yeah. You know, I know. So those ships, those ships had like, they have giant um, like water cannons on the side of it. So mm -hmm. they'd shoot the water cannons at people trying to hijack them, try to blast them off. And then if that didn't work, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know how widely this was practiced. It might still be practiced really widely now. Actually, I don't know. But I remember when it when hijackings were really big, um, you know, a decade plus ago there, companies started investing more in like very expensive private security companies to be mm. armed muscle with guns on those ships to protect it. And I don't know what that industry is like now, if it's grown or contracted in the last 10 years, but I remember. <laughs> we will never know. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, but right, they were like, they were like, look, we are tired of dealing with this. And right, we're not like, we don't want to risk our lives for it, but maybe we can hire some private military contractors to try to snipe people hijacking our ship because they're living off a dollar a day in Somalia and have nothing left to lose uh, hijacking our, our ship. Now, what does that say about capitalism? That, so... That is one of the most, right, Somalia is one of the most depressing examples of a larger tendency of the extreme uneven development of capitalist modernity, or whatever you want to call it, is that, right, the world economy is already, right, the working classes in every country already are on the losing end of the structure of the economy. That's a given. But across the world economy, right, it's stratified where some people have at least marginally more comfortable lives than others. And of course, Somalia is at the utter lowest end of the stratified world system. So almost no, no positive political economic development is materializing in any substantive way for the masses and multitudes of the working men and women of Somalia. So it puts us in this terrible situation where like you acknowledge that all existing options are, are worse, or as my, my essay suggests, we're at a total deadlock, right? Because mm -hmm. if the point of a core superpower, let's say, let's say that these countries claiming to be doing a war on terrorism, let's take them at their word and pretend that they're benevolently doing it to stop terrorism. And it's not to extract natural resources. Even if you give them the humanitarian intent, and say, okay, that's what we're doing. It's a failure. It hasn't prevented terrorism. It's led to a significant increase in terrorism. Mm -hmm. So it's a failure on a humanitarian front. And then if we become cynical, critical theorists, right? If they're doing it to just extract resources, they're also failing at that. So the, cap the capitalists who want to extract resources are utterly failing for the last 20 years in Somalia to extract resources. They're mostly failing, and they're um, so that's not working for them. And then pe the, the the masses of Somali citizens, who are of course on a major losing end here, way more than any corporation who wants to extract oil or a, a freighter getting hijacked. The 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 working classes of Somalia have nothing to show for it. They have a government that's historically been viewed largely illegitimate by a large sector of its population. Mm. They have the United States and other allies intervening, which even if it's for good intent, if we pretend that's true, hasn't led to very good outcomes. And you then you have this extraordinarily reactionary insurgency, Al-Shabaab, right? Al-Shabaab is not leading a socialist revolution. Mm 
They're not <laughs> trying to uh, have equality among the working classes, right? This is not some simplistic, um, I have to support Al-Shabaab type of argument because they're anti-American, yeah, right? With the counter-hegemon to- Right, uh, the very counter-hegemonic argument that you hear coming from sectors of people who don't know what they're talking about in the United States, right? But like, <laughs> nobody in Somalia has a good option. All options are worse. So, I mean, to give some credit to people trying to rebuild Somalia, labor unions are doing a almost impossible task, organizing small sectors of workers against repression from the Somali politicians who have tried to union bust against the very small lumpen petit bourgeois developmental class of Somalia who doesn't want unions and against Al-Shabaab who doesn't want to, if I'm not mistaken, has actually attacked a number of union working places over the last decade in Somalia. Really? So union organizers and people working in union jobs there are on the utter losing end of every possible aspect of the current 21st century capitalist world economy and the war on terror, every negative aspect that congeals concretely in Somalia's 21st century political economy. Labor union organizers are on the losing end of that, but they persist um, like the Federation of Somali trade unions. Um, you know, they're small. They don't, they don't represent a huge sector of Somalia. I mean, because a lot of Somali workers are not doing jobs that are unionized anyway, but they're doing something and they're fighting back against really, I mean, when we talk about oppressive circumstances, it doesn't really get much more oppressive than organizing in Somalia right now. And uh, they deserve a lot of credit for that type of task. Is there a lesson we can learn from that in the West, considering that there's a, you know, a situation right now with rail workers? Um, there's definitely, you know, like we were talking about off air, the UC teachers union strike. And I was reading about uh, L.A. Unified School District might go on strike again. Uh -huh. Is there something we can take away from this from a labor perspective here in the States or is it, is it so kind of inherently Somali that there's not much we can take and, and try to use here? Yeah, I mean, if anything, it illustrates the tried and true reality, which is that organizing for material interests is a winning strategy even if you're immediately under attack by the, the <laughs> leaders of the economy, of the po political movement, and in Somalia's instance, against an insurgency, which you don't have, say, here in the United States. No. But it's a universal, it's still a universal aspect. And there are some things in Somalia that are representative of other countries um, in the global south with struggling against a triple-pronged movements against mm. reactionary political governments, reactionary insurgencies and stuff. And one thing that's really important is that the organizers organizing in Somalia is not just limited to the union. I want to say it's not just union organizing in the workplace. And those who are working there are ex have an expanded conception of class struggle, right? A, a proper conception, which is that the working class, quote, as we know it, exists outside of the workplace, which means that class struggle 
and organizing is a class issue, but it's also a feminist issue. It's an environmental justice issue. So, and uh, these things all, I'm not trying to use a cliche word, but literally intersect in Somalia, right? There's been, they're on the losing end of climate change right now, terrible drought induced famines um, of massive proportion. That's in addition to say the other, say toxic dumping and overfishing and other ecological issues over the years. Um, so, and a lot of the people who have led that struggle have been young people, so youth, a lot of women trying to organize against both the repressive religious element, which does not necessarily lead to women's emancipation. So women leading sort of feminist struggles that overlap with economic interests, environmental justice and stuff. So Somalia does have an intersecting reality of all of the current struggles in the 21st century sort of stagnant capitalist world system in embodied in a really struggling country um, with a lot of things going wrong, but there are still sort of glimmers of hope there um, operating under very, very challenging circumstances. Where does China fit in in the Somali question? That's exactly where I was about to go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, can, and can China come in and help the situation out? Uh, considering their the whole situation with the Belt and Road that's kind of blown up since uh, Ukraine? You know, I'm going to answer your question by pivoting it towards answering something that wasn't quite your question. Okay. okay. So I, I can't personally speak to what the uh, Chinese investment specifically in Somalia is right now, because I just, I don't have that at the top of my head to give a substantive answer to answer that. But related to that, there's been a lot of investment of the Turkish government in Somalia mm. over recent years, building infrastructure, helping the Somali business community grow. And I don't personally have enough history of the Turkey's political economy right now to have an ultimate say in exactly what the Turkish plan for trying to be major power players in the political economy of Somalia right now are. But I do think that's an interesting more recent development in the political economy of Somalia is Turkey's involvement there. Um, so if we can get some um, people on the show who have more knowledge Jean, of the Turkish Bajlan. economy. We got we to get Jean Bajlan. Actually, we, we know a few uh, Turkish scholars through Jean. So maybe we should, uh, Pascal, get uh, Jean on. Well, Turkey is trying to present itself as an alternative to Saudi Arabia as the caretaker of the affairs of the Muslim world. So it doesn't surprise me that they're actually sending financial investment into Somalia because mm -hmm. they're trying to market themselves as the more uh, stable, trustworthy, NATO-friendly force of reason in the Islamic world. And and what is the proper left stance to take on, on situations like this? I think, you know, when people hear these horrible stories, you know, coming out of the Horn of Africa, um, it reminds me of kind of like right before, what, what years? It's like 06 to maybe 2010 when we were hearing the horror stories of what was going on to uh, to the women of these regions. And you brought it up in one of your pieces also when you brought up Afghanistan that, uh, you know, that was supposed to be the, the reason for staying. Like, but what about the women? Right. Is, are, are they used almost as a political prop? to 
to get people behind a Western involvement because of tyrannical, you know, warlords that we backed. Sadly, I mean, it does seem that way. And for the last 20 years since the war on terror started, and really before that too, but really amplified since then, uh, this invocation of a very soft, cynical type of bourgeois feminism that the United States government sometimes invokes as a justification for the war on terrorism does treat women's rights as an issue to punt around cynically to justify intervening. And yeah, it's that immediately became the issue to talk about in Afghanistan and obviously not just in Afghanistan in a number of other places that these quote humanitarian interventions happen. It is cynically deployed as a justification for supporting women's rights, which it rarely does. But I think our job as right critical critical theorists thinking about current events is to take that take that kernel of possibility, right? Think dialectically and try to use the proffering of a Western bourgeois democratic state invoking women's rights as a justification to go to war in another country like the United States and say, okay, well, then let's actually try to support, let's figure out what supporting women in Somalia really means, which means let's actually take a look at who's leading some of the feminist struggles in Somalia, rather than taking these very uh, simplistic arguments from the U.S. political class who has no knowledge of what feminism in Somalia, let alone in the United States even means. So the task of, for right for us or, or people critically minded towards thinking about this is to you should right, be pretty cynical about when it gets invoked for why the US is invading somewhere. But then to say, OK, what actually is going on? Like, what are the situation that women actually face there? Do a lot of women leading feminist struggles in whatever country we're talking about being invaded. Mm -hmm. How do they feel about their existing government and what relationship does the United States have to that government? Are they oppressing women vis-a-vis -vis the United States supporting a proxy government, which is very anti-feminist? Mm -hmm. Is the government in favor of some broad form of women's rights? Are they, what type of secular or religious reasons are they justifying to emancipate or repress women? all sorts of things that you should ask for any type of quote social justice struggle we should be we should like we should pretty quickly probably disregard that that's the US government's intent because it's probably not but instead of giving up on that and then just saying okay well let's analyze the the structure of the capitalist economy why is the US really there which you should do actually take that kernel of possibility of what's okay if we're going to invoke feminists and women's rights the least we can do is let's actually figure out what women in Somalia or Afghanistan or whatever, what are their thoughts on the potential of the U.S. invading on their government treatment of them, on their status, their status as equal citizens in their country. I mean, these are just basic sort of critical thinking tasks we can do when any type of war is being proposed to us, oftentimes in the name of, quote, human rights and especially women's rights. And, and is Somalia just kind of strate at a strategic target? Because it seems like we've plundered them to death. Like you said, the overfishing. Is there that much oil there that would necessitate this level of involvement? 
wars cost money well that is the really that's the mil, that's the billion dollar question for both the the natural resource industries and us which is there's been a lot of prospecting and exploring that suggests Somalia could be the next big thing. And sometimes those things don't pan out, right? You do exploration and a company says, we think there's something good here. And then they check and there's, it doesn't amount to anything. Yeah. Or it costs too much money to get it out. That, that too. And, uh, but there are there, I mean, to, to be totally realistic, there have been companies waiting since right before the Somali state collapsed to try to explore this and as the carbon capitalist democracy advances for the last uh 30 years since the somali state collapsed and as natural resources are exhausted more and more and then the tug of war between natural resource extraction versus green capitalists gets played out in among politics right (laughs) if you can keep finding new frontiers to suck resources out of then sadly that's probably going to happen so Ultimately, what could happen in Somalia is in the next 5, 10, 20 years, whatever, there is a ton of capital sunk into looking for stuff that ultimately doesn't amount to much. But, right, it's one of those things where then retroactively, the people who do it just sort of shrug. And I've seen this, I saw this play out in a different way because my, my other research for my, my PhD dissertation was on diamond mining extraction. And a similar thing happens for diamond extraction, right? Like a small sector of people are employed to try to get the diamonds out. And then sometimes the diamond mine is shuttered for not being profitable enough in 12 months later. And all these promises of, oh, we're bringing jobs to the community. Like, oh, okay, well, there's no jobs anymore. Capital capital pulled out. It's no longer uh, financially viable. So all of these alleged beneficial things of we're job creators going in to, to jumpstart the economy, right? They're not really a great answer. And in Somalia, it's, this is, there's a lot of, bad, there's a lot of tough situations going on there. I, I find this interesting. Cause I, I feel like the failure of certain institutions was really laid bare with the Afghanistan papers. If you believed, wait a minute before Jay, you got to show the mug, Jay. You got to show the mug. You got to show the mug. <laughs> the TIR mug. I got one. <laughs> Be cool like Jay. But, but Pascal, I, I, I know you don't agree with this 100%, but this is something that we talk a lot with, with Cuba and Gene. And, and Cuba, who's kind of worked in these industries, there's so much incompetence at a certain level. And I remember we were talking about the Afghanistan papers on a show, I think it was one or two years ago, whenever that leaked. And someone kept bringing up in the chat, well, they found all this, it wasn't uranium, what was the lithium? They found all this lithium, they found all this lithium. And Cuba was like, yeah, I remember when that happened. It's too much money to extract it. You have to extract it and you have to get it to that's it was you were not going to make that much money. You were going to spend that much and just trying to get it out. So it wasn't really worth it. And these minerals are everywhere in the earth as we're finding out with fracking. Right. Drilling for oil in Pennsylvania (laughs) through fracking. Now they got earthquakes and undrinkable water. 
it, it seems like when you talk about Somalia, much like Afghanistan, it's a mix of failures. And the military industrial complex will just keep propping it up because people are afraid to lose jobs, you know, the PR nightmare, which to me, Afghanistan wasn't that bad of a PR nightmare. Um, most Americans have forgotten about it unless you were, you know, directly affected with a lost family member or something like that. I mean, how do you feel about this, Pascal? I mean, I think that there definitely is a cost-benefit analysis to basic imperialism. Like, you know, are we going to get any profit return on investment in these resources that we're trying to extract? And oftentimes, if there's not going to be a profit margin, then they're not going to go in to these places. And I think that Afghanistan is a place that demonstrates that that's the case because eventually what the United States did was just leave. And that stuff ended up staying in the ground because obviously... There was a uh, there was a calculation that the the, the evacuation the evacuation quotient was more valuable than the profit from trying to extract resources from a place where you had the Taliban that was still posing a threat to the American military. So I don't disagree with you at all, and I do agree that there is a certain level of listen. Everything the, the crisis of legitimacy also is going to include intelligence agencies. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we're seeing that, you know, if we look at what happened in Venezuela with the guy Juan Guaido, it wasn't <laughs> exactly like the, the smooth days of the Dulles brothers. You Ooh. know, these, these cats are definitely not at the top of their game in terms of their ability to indulge in international espionage. So in time, their, their wear and tear is demonstrating itself as well. Good. Well, can I ask you guys, because you're two smart fellas. Has the U.S. failed since Vietnam? Oh man, that's you know you know outside, who outside you know of who would agree with that. You know who, who would agree with that, right? Who who Besner? Oh, all day long, Danny Besner would agree with that. Besner shout out to Danny with... Besner. Shout out to Danny Besner. Besner's last paper basically argues that since Vietnam, including the war on terror, the United States uh, position as the global arbiter of record has been disastrous. Uh, outside of Haiti and the Americas, let's be honest, the U.S. kind of knows how to F over the Americas and the Caribbean. 200 years plus of figuring that out. It feels like Southeast Asia and the Middle East has been a bit of a cluster for the United States. Is is that a, is that a fair assumption? I think the war on terror was a complete disaster. There's it uh, is. there's a really good book. Let, I'm blanking on the name of it. Let me just plug it in really quick. On the first five years that the United States was in Iraq, yes, it's called "War Without End: The Iraq War." In that, book. that book was written by my undergraduate mentor. Oh, wow. um, Michael Schwartz, who was a sociologist at Stony Brook University in New York. Um, And what Michael does is he basically looked at and documented the first five years very intensively of all of the resources 
the U.S. military-industrial complex sunk into trying to rebuild Iraq in its image of exactly what it wanted as a neoliberal Iraq. And all of the just horrid outcomes and utter failure of trying to do all of the money that the U.S. and time sunk in Iraq, where, uh, Jason, you bring up the Afghanistan papers. Um, one thing that was so great about that book is that book illustrated, right, all of the folks who were... Um, invading or quote nation building in Afghanistan were complaining that all of, all of the money was going to Iraq and not enough attention on Afghanistan. So Iraq was the perfect case study of what happens in the country when the US spends more time, money, boots on the ground advisors of trying to rebuild a country in its neoliberal image. And Michael Schwartz's book on this just gives the most devastating, brutal reality of critique of all of the horrible things no matter how much time and effort the U.S. sunk into to breaking down to rebuild up Iraq, what a failure it was on almost every metric of oil capitalists wanting to get money out of it, of there being a competent bureaucracy in Iraq, of quelling the insurgency which hated them, all of the failures of it. Um, and that is a, that at least to me, that's a really great book. And I'm not plugging it because I know Michael. I'm doing it totally independent of it because... Uh, I didn't even read the book until I wasn't even a student of Michael's anymore. And I ended up assigning it when I taught a class on terrorism. And I assigned the book on the Afghanistan papers as well. So I've, I've assigned those books to students before <laughs> and they both found it very, for students who have almost no knowledge of the war that's gone on for the last 20 years that they've been alive, those two books paired together of the years in Afghanistan and years in Iraq, reading them in tandem at the same time and bouncing back and forth was re is really an aha moment for even no matter how much money and time you sink into trying to break down and rebuild up a country in your image of what you want that the United States did there. What an utter failure it, it basically was. Utter, utter failure. And you look at even what's going on now in, you know, south of the Americas. Pascal, I think you bring up an excellent point that the days of the Dulles brothers are gone. And maybe their final hurrah is Vietnam. You we know. lost Vietnam, bro. I know. And that's, <laughs> they were warned. <laughs> they were warned by the, what, the French and the English. Like, hey, maybe, maybe this ain't it. And they didn't care. Empire in crisis, brother. Whew. And yet, so Somalia has been this like, amalgamation of like a, a testing ground of all of these terrible strategies that don't work that are happening just below the radar because nobody really knows they're happening, at least in the same way, even some knowledge on Afghanistan, Iraq exists. So Somalia is right, the low, the low footprint of boots on the ground, right? So the U.S. doesn't keep many special forces or boots on the ground there. Almost nobody, a very small. You say 2006 is like the pivotal year. And isn't that 2006 around the year that U.S. boots on the ground come to Iraq and Afghanistan? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, so that was they went into Iraq. Um, well, before the U.S. formally declared their war on Iraq in 2003, they already were basically bombing and invading it for a full year before that. But. They formally, quote, invaded in 2003, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and uh, they had already destroyed the country in 2002. But um, but yeah, but that was right. The first couple of years is when Bush was really amp like amping up like 
like we need to build up an insurgency, build it up, build it up. So there were a ton, there was so much focus on building up hundreds of thousands of people across Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, right, the US had their little proxy support for Ethiopia in 2006 because the US was not going to formally invade Somalia, but it happened anyway in, with the Ethiopian military, which the US military advised allegedly. Um, and right since then, it's been drone warfare, um, joint special operations, covert operations that almost get no acknowledgement. And what sadly that means for people in Somalia is that when people's brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, mom and dad get blown away in a drone strike, there's almost no accountability for it. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of really sad testimony you can see from Somalis who will say, my, you know, my, my brother, my uncle, my, my niece was killed next door to me or right in front of my eyes from a strike. And I never heard, I waited a year and nobody from the United States ever reached out to me and told me why this person, what, what, why, why is my loved one no longer here? Why did you ruin my life and take their life? And you've never even reached out to me to like acknowledge you did this, to say you're sorry, to explain why you were targeting the area in the first place. And those those stories are some of the the whole thing is one big terrible sad catastrophe. But like those are the most like those are the moments that make it tangible. That if you're using it as a learning moment, if I'm using these examples in the classroom, you know, I'll show like a five minute clip of a five-year-old girl crying in Somalia that she saw her sister get blown away right in front of her. And she'll say, and the interviewer says, do you know who, who killed her? And she's like, oh, it was the Americans. But it wasn't, you know, it was a plane in the sky and it was the Americans who did it. And it's like, these are the things, right, that, and you can find the same testimony from people in Afghanistan and in anywhere the war on terror happens, right? And then you get people in that community who otherwise might have had a positive view of the United States, then say, I really don't like the United States government. And maybe you're going to be willing to wage an insurgency just to get some payback. And, uh, but, you know, regardless of that, even if you don't join an insurgency, the like, the, the human toll of it of like, even acknowledging that this covert operation went really bad and that you killed a bunch of people oftentimes is completely unacknowledged uh, so getting civilian casualty and death counts for what's going on in somalia is very hard to get the bureau of investigative journalism is the best website i have found that aggregates the u.s air wars of what they're doing in somalia afghanistan i think yemen um, pakistan maybe uh, somewhere else and the bureau of investigative journalism aggregates the statistics of rough estimates of how many people have been killed and how many strikes have happened in the last 10, 20 years. Um, and the, the interview I was referencing was an interview that Vice News did a couple of years ago, I think, on it, um, which was a short like documentary showing what counterterrorism means, how the Somali, the small Somali army special forces gets training from the United States military, what their counterterrorism mission means. And then they have an inter a, a brief clip where they're interviewing a mother with her young daughter, explaining how they, they lost a family member, which is really sad. And there's other reports on similar things, uh, but 
you know, the information is hard to get, but it is out there to some estimate of the, the human mis immiseration and toll of it. Mm. Well, Jason, thank you very much for, for joining us again. Um, we look forward to having you back to talk about more cheery topics. We'll probably bring Gene on or, or Kuba. We can have a, a really deep dive, or maybe we should bring you on for a Thursday news show. That might be fun. Have Pascal me on with you guys. Pascal, <laughs> <laughs> right. do you have anything, any closing remarks before we head out? Oh, I really appreciate Jason coming on. Thank you so much. We're definitely going to have you on again. Wherever you are listening or watching to this show, there are links in the description to Jason's pieces. There should be about three links in there. Let us know what you think about the U.S. involvement in Somalia. Did you even know about this level of involvement in Somalia? Have you seen Black Hawk Down? I want to know. Wasn't Bruce Willis the star in Black Hawk Down? I don't know. I, I don't think he was in that. I don't, I don't remember who was. I don't think Bruce Willis was in that. There was like four of those movies that come out around the same time. I don't remember. Oh, this is depressing. I actually really want to know, too, if anyone still watches Black Hawk Down or if that's just a thing that's aged now where nobody uh, nobody knows of it anymore because it was so big uh, when it came out. The, the same person that watches Black Hawk Down watches Pearl Harbor. It's the same guy. A veterans day it's, it's their veterans day watch it's the black hawk down rambo 2 uh double feature jason thank you very much we are out